0: It began with a conversation. Four young African-American men in their first year at North Carolina Agricultural and Technical College in a dormitory room, discussing their hopes and their frustrations. It was late 1959 and then it was early 1960 and of the many topics they talked about, the one they kept returning to was the challenge of living a dignified life in the Jim Crow South.
1: Uh, My colleagues, Joseph McNeil, the late David Richmond and Ezell Blair had uh, been discussing democracy and the lack of it in this country, particularly as it relates to African Americans.
0: Living with racial segregation had left them exhausted. As one of them said, we just got tired of talking about it and decided to do something.
1: And We had to do something about it. And we quickly concluded that there was no better example than the F.W. Woolworth five and ten, 10 store.
0: Late in the afternoon, the four students, Ezel Blair Jr., Franklin McCain, Joseph McNeil, and David Richmond entered the Woolworth store in downtown Greensboro.
1: You could shop at 43 counties, but number 44, which was a lunch counter, was off limits to you if you were African American.
0: They browsed for a few minutes, purchased some small items, and then sat down at the lunch counter. I'm sorry, the waitress told them. We don't serve
1: colored in here.
0: What happened in Greensboro during the first week of February 1960 was remarkable. Four unknown students had set in motion events that would move a nation. Their quiet, bold action ignited the pent-up hopes and frustration of young African Americans, and a new chapter in the struggle for racial equality began. I was just reading an excerpt from the book, The Citians, protest, and legal change in the civil rights era by Christopher W. Schmidt, a professor at the Chicago-Kent College of Law, and our guest on this episode of Hidden Legal Figures. We'll explore why Professor Schmidt thinks it's impossible to have a complete understanding of the Sidians without devoting careful attention to the law, a focus he says civil rights historians have completely missed.
2: Yeah, this book actually traces back to when I was in law school. Um, I was in a, uh, a class in which uh, the focus of the class is trying to explore stories about how social movements affected legal change. And I was really struck by uh, a set of cases that I recalled from when I took constitutional law in law school. And these were um, called the sit-in cases. And they had to do with some relatively... Um, a uh, complicated area of 14th Amendment equal protection clause doctrine. And there are cases that involved appeals of uh, criminal convictions for people who are involved in these lunch counter protests, which I had heard, known about. I had studied the civil rights movement and I'd um, previously uh, done a, a history PhD before going to law school. So I did a lot of work in the civil rights era. Of course, I knew about the sit-ins. I think most people who studied the era knew about them. Uh, But I didn't actually know that they created a lot of very interesting uh, constitutional litigation that came out of them until I bumped into these cases in my constitutional law book in which the court struggled over the question, the basic question, does the constitution prohibit restaurant owners from practicing racial discrimination in this way? Because if they're not allowed to do that, then these convictions for students who were protesting couldn't stand. Uh, so, these cases I knew about, I came to this uh, class uh, in which I had an opportunity to connect up social protest and legal change, so I thought, this is going to be a great opportunity. And my plan was to go off and to pick up the uh, books I assumed that were written on the sit-ins and then connected up the story of the protest itself with these cases. And I thought I had a nice little seminar paper, it would take me a couple months, I'd wrap that up and then move on to other things. Okay. And the most surprising thing about this is that when I went off to go get those books on the sit-ins, I actually realized uh, kind of quickly that there is no book on the sit-ins. There's actually no, until this book that uh, I published, there's no single scholarly book dedicated to the sit-ins. There's some wonderful children's books. There's some wonderful memoirs of people who are involved in the sit-ins, which they might have a chapter or two on their experience with the sit-ins. There's some people who have written um, local histories. There's great histories written about... Greensboro, North Carolina, in which, of course, they have a major chapter dedicated to sit-ins. But no one ever actually tried to tackle the sit-ins as a topic in a single book. Mm -hmm. So it meant to write this, what I thought was going to be a small little seminar paper, required me to start doing more and more research. And then the more research I started doing, uh, I got fascinated by the question that I began with, which was this connection between when protest turns into legal challenges and when courts get challenged by different kinds of demands by people out in the streets um, so that still was a fascinating to me but then also I just became more and more convinced that we needed a book on the sit-ins. this was just simply something that should be on uh, the shelves of libraries and uh, so I decided that this was going to be an opportunity for me to try and fill in that gap.
0: Now that doesn't sound like a book that you can write in about three four six months. <laughs> How long did that take?
2: Yeah, so uh, from the time I was in that seminar, working on my seminar paper on the sit-ins to the publication of the book, uh, it was about a decade. Um, you know, I worked on other things along the way. Um, but yeah, a lot of it was because uh, some of the research that I assumed I could borrow from others uh, hadn't really been done. Mm-hmm. People, you know, There's some great local studies about the sit-ins, but again, writing about it as a coherent topic uh, hadn't really been done. There were a few people, um, interestingly, some of the best uh, histories of the sit-ins were people who were involved in the sit-ins themselves when uh, there's a couple um, master's theses and one PhD thesis. I think basically they were just grad students who saw what was going on, ran down there, uh, and started taking notes about the people and then writing it up. So there's some good early accounts of it. Mm -hmm. Um, And then different people have tackled the issue. Um, But it meant that I had to do a lot more um, on-the-ground research. And the research I did for this book involved looking at the protests themselves, so getting um, on-the-ground research of the people who were taking part in these protests. Um, And one important thing for researching the sit-ins is that they were famous from the beginning. I mean, within a few days of that very first seminal protest, February 1st in Greensboro, North Carolina, national newspapers started picking up the story. People started going down there, activists and journalists. And again, the fact that journalists picked up the story pretty early in the movement, uh, meant that you can get these contemporaneous accounts, these accounts by people who are down there talking to these people. You can get the direct words of these people who are involved in the sit-ins. So much of it was just trying to reconstruct the protests, why they were doing it, how they explained what they were doing. I really tried to rely as much as possible on people who were involved in a protest Talking about the protests at the time of the protests. So, I did look at oral histories and recollections, but I really wanted to get that raw um, feeling of energy and uncertainty and fear of people as they're taking part in it. So, much of it was that research. And then the book does go off uh, and it basically it takes the, uh, the challenge these students posed uh, about the uh, legality and the constitutionality of this form of discrimination, discrimination at least public accommodations, restaurants, lunch counters. Uh, And then it traces that claim, uh, that legal challenge as it moves through the legal system. So I do a lot of work with the uh, lawyers who came down to represent the students, the National Association for Advancement of Colored People, NAACP, which is headed up by Thurgood Marshall at the beginning of the sit-ins. They have a wonderful uh, archive of materials. So you can see how the lawyers responded to them. Uh, and I do a lot of work on courts as well. There's a whole chapter that really looks closely at the Supreme Court. So the research for this, um, it had me doing all sorts of research, on the ground grassroots protest research, lawyers research, and then you know, going to Washington, D.C., Library of Congress and looking at the papers of the Supreme Court justices who eventually heard the cases.
0: So what would you say intrigued you the most during this time? Was it the effect that the citizens had on the law Or was it the fact that the legal efforts themselves had been largely ignored or a combination of both?
2: Yeah, so the mere fact that this story, which I think is just a huge, uh, important story, uh, not only for civil rights protests, of course, and we, we knew that before, but also in terms of a legal challenge to what the Constitution actually means. Um, the fact that it hadn't really been appreciated as a major story of legal history, a major story of legal protests. You know, people remember the sit-ins as a social movement protest. But the fact that there's a whole element to the story, right? And this is much of the book is taking it after the protests take place. The protests take place, the main sit-in movement takes about three months. It happens in the um, winter to early spring of 1960. And then there are sit-ins that happened after that, but this sort of coherent movement bringing in tens of thousands of people into a protest. That happened, and then it largely ended, and then the protests, uh, the civil rights movement focused on uh, other issues along with uh, public accommodations. But then my story still goes because these legal challenges that these students spark, it starts working its way through the system. And I think one of the reasons we haven't quite uh, appreciated how significant of a challenge this was. I mean, I have people at the time, including Supreme Court justices, saying this is as big a issue as Brown versus Board of Education. This is as important for us to resolve. And the fact that we don't remember these uh, cases at the same level as Brown. I mean, the sitting cases were a few small pages in my constitutional law casebook had a lot to do with the fact that the legal system, particularly the Supreme Court, didn't know what to make of them. They struggled with them, they struggled with them, they never really fully resolved them. And then eventually this legal issue did win out, but it won out not in the courts, but in Congress. So in 1964, Congress passed the Civil Rights Act, which included a provision which prohibited the very form of racial discrimination that these students were protesting against. Uh, so they did win, but it wasn't a sort of classic protest, lawyers take it up and then push this story through, and then they had this grand victory in court. There is a grand victory, but so much else happened between the spring of 1960 when the protests happened and when that 1964 Civil Rights Act was passed. Uh, I don't think people quite appreciate the linkages uh, between these two events.
0: Mm. And the sit-ins were themselves a shock to the, to the whole civil rights structure especially with the lawyers, because if I understand, they were a little bit skeptical at first, correct?
2: Yeah, and some of them were even more than a little bit skeptical. Um, There's this uh, famous episode that people in the uh, NWCP, or at least the, the lawyers, would talk about when Thurgood Marshall, who was actually overseas when the sit-ins first began, uh, doing some work in Africa, but he came back and learned what was happening. And the NWCP, which is a preeminent, um, you know, we, a group of lawyers representing racial justice issues. They had won Brown versus Board of Education just six years earlier. Uh, People turned to them and were wondering what they were going to do. And Thurgood Marshall is actually quite skeptical initially, at least he acted quite skeptically uh, about what the protests were all about. And there's really two reasons why a lot of lawyers, not all of them, but a lot of lawyers, and particularly some of these really prominent national lawyers in the NAACP, why they were, skeptical to some extent about what happened. One is uh, I do think lawyers in general see a certain way in which society changes, and that's predominantly through changing laws, right? And the way you change laws is you challenge laws. You challenge them in court through litigation, and perhaps you challenge them in legislatures by lobbying and demanding legislative change. But there's formal processes by which you change the laws. And for these lawyers in the NAACP, they largely thought that's the best way to change it, because that's the way it's going to last. It's going to stay. So they're skeptical over the tactics the students chose, Uh, the idea of making these protests, which had all sorts of potential costs. And Thurgood Marshall is worried about, um, you know, these students getting criminal records and about uh, the segregationists protecting their property, that this wasn't really the issue to tackle. So, there was this sort of idea that uh, they would be better having a more formal legal process and probably being better having more guidance from the lawyers. Uh, the other reason many lawyers are skeptical uh, has to do with the particular legal claim that the students <clears throat> seem to be pursuing, which is basically uh, by virtue of their actions and how people interpreted their actions, people assumed that this was a challenge to the constitutionality of racial discrimination in lunch counters and restaurants and hotels, these privately owned public accommodations. That's basically what they were demanding. Uh, They're demanding access here. Um, And the lawyers looked at this as a potential constitutional challenge, but the lawyers also knew that their constitutional uh, basis for the student's claim was not very clear. And the reason it wasn't very clear is that these lunch counters were by and large privately owned and operated. And the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, the Equal Protection Clause, which is the clause uh, with which the NWCV won Brown versus Board of Education. So after Brown versus Board of Education, schools can no longer have official racial segregation policies. That would violate the 14th Amendment. That would violate the requirement of equal protection of the law. Uh, and that was quickly extended beyond just schools to any public facilities or anything run by the government, right? So say you have a public... Auditorium that's owned by a city, run by the city, that can't uh, be practiced racial discrimination after Brown versus Board of Education. The courts would extend it. But then the question was, did this logic of Brown, the non-discrimination principle of Brown, did it also extend to people who are not part of the government, who just had private businesses, uh, private businesses that serve the public, right? Mm-hmm. But they're no private businesses. These people are not getting their paychecks from the government. And for a lot of lawyers who knew uh, the nuances of constitutional doctrine, they saw a really um, sharp line between when you're asking government to do something to obey the 14th Amendment Constitution, and when they cross the line and start asking private actors to obey it. Because the Constitution becomes a lot less clear once you start moving into these private actors. So I think the NWCP was skeptical over tactics. And then when they tried to envision what a constitutional litigation campaign would look like based on trying to uh, protect these students' rights, they were less clear that this was actually the kind of winning argument they could do. They were less clear that this could actually be the kind of great victory like they had in
0: the Brown case with the schools. Interesting. That, that does make it like sort of a legal nightmare for them.
2: Uh, yeah, it, it challenged them. And the fascinating thing, uh, and this has to do with a rather technical area of constitutional doctrine, which I try to uh, explain in the book, has to do with the idea of the state action doctrine. The state action doctrine basically says that most of the provisions of the Constitution, including the 14th Amendment, applies to the term as state actors, meaning government, right? It applies to government. No state shall um, take away certain rights, including equal protection of the laws. Uh, the challenge comes is that the courts have allowed certain private actors to be treated like state actors. Right. If private Mm -hmm. actors start taking over government responsibility, for example, um, the Democratic Party in the South and through much of the 20th century uh, didn't prohibit African-Americans to vote. Uh, Now, is this a violation of the Constitution? The Constitution is supposed to say you can't condition the vote based on race. But then the Democratic Party would say, but we're a private organization. We're not the government. Uh, Eventually, the courts did apply. Uh, The 14th and 15th amendments to these private political parties saying we're talking about an election here election is what governments do And simply because private actors are involved doesn't mean we're going to protect you from the requirements of the Constitution So the courts were willing to push and apply these constitutional norms into private society but it wasn't quite clear that they're going to go into um, private um, businesses that serve the public like these restaurants and lunch counters and that was an open question. But the lawyers were skeptical. But some of them then started thinking about it and saying, no, this is an argument that they could actually pursue. So what we see is an initial round of skepticism. And then we see the lawyers, they had a conference, they, they talked about it, and they decided, no, that we can actually represent these students. And they actually became um, more optimistic about the possibility of actually winning on some of these claims, the possibility of maybe getting the Supreme Court to accept the kind of argument that would apply this racial non-discrimination requirement to these restaurant owners. Um, and part of this was the NWSB just being practical because the sit-ins was taking off and they did mm. not want to left be left behind. Okay. And these lawyers, they are, they're best lawyers in the country. And, you know, they basically said, this is something we know how to argue cases before the court. And if we can find a good argument to make, we're going to take it. Okay. So they pushed aside that initial skepticism for reasons having to do both with um, their ability to be, um, to creatively litigate and find new arguments to pursue and also just the practicalities that they needed to get on board with the sit-ins and they needed to play a role in the sit-ins or else the sit-ins would pass them by. And, you know, the uh, civil rights movement, uh, there's a lot of competition between the different uh, organizations. Uh, and the NWCP was quite conscious of this and they wanted to make sure that they could play a role here, both for the principle of it, but also because they didn't want the other Uh, civil rights organizations to uh, get ahead of them. They thought they were better situated to really um, take advantage of the situation and and advance the cause.
0: Chris, can we go back to what made the sit-ins happen in the first place? In the book, you use a very interesting phrase. You say that segregation had become a political liability. Uh, When did it become a liability? Uh, How did that happen, and and whose liability was it?
2: Yeah, that's a a great question. So we definitely need to understand that in 1960, um, racial segregation was in some ways on the retreat. We don't want to overstate this because the segregationists still had control over the southern governments, and they still were calling the shots through much of the south, and we still had the battles of the civil rights movement. But just in terms of justifying... A policy of racial segregation, there was more and more pressure on the South to move away from this this policy. And there's all sorts of ways in which this pressure is developing. Uh, one was uh, foreign policy. So the United States at the time was engaged in a Cold War with the Soviet Union, and the Soviet Union and the United States were fighting over what they call back then third world countries, right? countries around the world in which uh, the Soviet Union the United States is trying to develop allegiances with these countries, which were predominantly populated by people of color. And the Soviet Union would go to these countries and say, why would you want to lie with the United States? Do you know what they're doing to their colored people in their country? Uh, and they didn't need to make anything up. They would just point to the headlines that were coming out across the South. The United States um, State Department took note of this and would then be talking to the Justice Department and the President saying, this is a major problem. We are having difficulty protecting our nation. It's a question of national security when we have these situations. So we have foreign policy play an issue. Uh, Economics plays an issue. Uh, A lot of these protests in the sit-in movement took place uh, at uh, chain restaurants, right? Like the Woolworths, uh, in which there's a lot of economic pressure on these companies when they have a national presence. Uh, to abandon this segregation policy. So while these sit ins were taking place in the South, you actually have protests taking place at Woolworths headquarters in New York. Uh, and a company like Woolworths said, uh, adopted a policy saying, We have no official policy on segregation. We just allow our local um, uh, affiliates to choose whatever policy maps on to their own communities. So They say, We don't have a policy, but we leave it up to the local managers. Um, but this really uh, caused trouble because that meant that people said, well, if you're not going to have a policy that prohibits this in your company. Uh, we're going to protest you. So you start having boycotts of Woolworth restaurants across the country. cause called sympathy protests, right? Mm-hmm. So up in Boston, you protest by not uh, going into your Woolworth's or having a sit-in at the Boston Woolworth's, shutting it down, basically. Not because that particular restaurant was segregating, but because that restaurant was part of a business which refused to require racial non discrimination in its southern branches. Mm-hmm. Uh, so just the mere fact that it was a national um, business meant that you could uh, protesters could exert pressure all around uh, and there was a lot more pressure on these companies uh, to abandon this. So you see some of these economic pressures. Um, also you see it, um, a lot of the early sit-in protests took place in the um, upper South, particularly in cities of the upper South which were desperately trying to become more modern cities, trying to attract economic investment, uh, trying to pull in people from around the country to come to those cities. We're talking about cities like Greensboro, uh, North Carolina, Nashville, uh, Greenville, South Carolina, right? So these are cities that are really trying uh, to sort of push aside some of their history and trying to say, no, we want national businesses to come and invest in us. So a lot of the local government officials, um, not if not fully sympathetic to the sit protesters, they were in some ways helpful to them because I think they were looking at the broad picture and thinking um, segregation is on the way out, and this is not helping us create a city, showing us as a city that's that's open to investment. That's a real national city. Atlanta had the same issue, right? Atlanta liked to brag that it was... A, the city too busy to hate. And mm-hmm. then you have these protests and people are like, you know, you're know, you not living up to what you're trying to sell yourselves as. Mm-hmm. So some of the local government officials eventually um, sought to broker deals between the businesses and the protesters to try and uh, resolve this. And you know, by this point, resolving it basically meant they had to
0: desegregate at, at some point. And during all this time, the, the students who were participating in what became officially known as the sit-ins, they were born and came of age during all of this period.
2: Yeah, so one of the fascinating things that uh, I realized when I was studying these students who were involved in the sit-ins, most of the sit-in protesters were in college, right? So they're ages, um, you know, 18 to early 20s, some of them just out of college, but that's where most of them, there were some high school students, but mostly college students. And if you think about that age of the college students, they would have been somewhere around, uh, probably middle school, early high school, at the time of Brown versus Board of Education, which was handed down in 1954. <clears throat> these students came of age during a period in which they were told from the highest court in the land that a new era was dawning, that racial segregation was now unconstitutional, that these practices that had been around for generations were now gonna be going away. Uh, and the Supreme Court uh, you know, said as much. And the thing is, most of these students, when they went to school in the South after years after Brown, they continued to go to segregated schools, right? Because we know about the implementation of Brown square of Education. Uh, not a heck of a lot happened in the South for years after Brown, or it wasn't really until the 1960s that a lot of these Southern states and cities began to desegregate. So I was really fascinated by this idea that they were uh, really came of age in an era of new possibilities and hope, right? New signals, this is, you know, um, Harry Truman was president in the late 40s and early 50s, and he was actually advocating for quite sweeping civil rights policy and never got through. But this is, they're talking about this. Jackie Robinson, 1947. Things were happening out there. They could see these possibilities. But at the same time, the kind of changes that seemed to be um, sort of uh, promised, they really weren't happening. And that's why I think the school situation is there. So it's this mix, and I really try to capture this, this volatile mix of hopefulness and frustration. And if you look at how these students described why they actually just got so fed up that they went down there and joined these protests, uh, they talk about being frustrated a lot. They talk about being frustrated with promises that weren't followed through. They talk about frustration sometimes with uh, the more established civil rights organizations, sometimes with their parents and grandparents' generations, who they say they tried things like litigation and lobbying and going through the formal processes, uh, and that didn't work. So we need to try something new. Right, uh, very much inspired by Martin Luther King. Right, Martin Luther King uh, led the Montgomery bus boycott in the mid-1950s. Uh, again, this was a seminal moment in their upbringing, uh, seeing the way uh, this kind of protest could take place. They also were very much inspired by the students involved in the Little Rock protests. Right, so Little Rock uh, protests, or um, the integration of Little Rock, took place in 1958. These students were, you know, about the same age as a lot of students who would eventually take part in a sit-in protest. But when they looked at Little Rock, they didn't see this uh, the great power of lawyers and litigation. They saw the power of young people, right, being on the, the front lines of the struggle. Uh, and they took a lot of inspiration from that as well.
0: So in a sense, they had just as much, if not more so, reason to be frustrated than anybody else in, in, involved around.
2: But I think their frustration is explainable. You know, in some ways, it's really striking to think about. They, lived, they grew up in a society in which they had a lot more opportunity than their parents did, right? So in some way, they had it better off than their parents. But the fact that they had a better situation doesn't mean that they weren't frustrated because their expectations were also elevated at this point, right? Mm-hmm. So the ra- in expectations, coupled with the fact that these expectations were being, um, you know, put forth but not followed through, Uh, I think that was really what um, frustrated and made that volatile mix. Um, And also, we do need to note that in 1960, um, society was changing to the extent that uh, the students who took part in these protests, particularly the very early ones, they didn't know what was going to happen, right? They didn't know if they were going to get thrown in jail. They didn't know if they were going to get attacked and abused. And all this happened to different people involved in the protests. But it is important to note that the vast majority of people who took part in the sit-in protests were not arrested, and they were not uh, beaten up. They took part in a protest, they shut down restaurants, and then they went home at the end of the day, because there are tens of thousands of people involved in these protests. That kind of response, in which they could actually get this protest, get sympathetic reaction from around the country, because a lot of people around the country may be a little skeptical about the particular tactic, but in terms of what they were fighting for, uh, they had pretty strong support, including from leading political figures around the country. That simply would not have happened if they had tried to launch these protests, say, 20 years earlier, right? So they might have been frustrated that their parents didn't do this, that they need to go do this because their parents didn't, sometimes these students would say. Um, mm-hmm. They just were in a different era, and there were possibilities for change. Um, and the national media was key, too, right? The media both um, it, it spread the message of the protests, but in some ways it protected them, too, because having the press there all the time would limit the Southern police knew that they were being watched for much of these protests. Uh, there are counter demonstrations, as in um, KKK would sometimes show up at these sit in protests. But again, the police would be there and the police goal would be to try to avoid any direct confrontation. So you did have some violence and confrontation. Students were attacked. But again, if you just look at the tens of thousands of people who took part in the protests, most of them were able to pull off a successful protest and again, it would be shocking to people who were living in the 1930s or 40s that we're going to have this mass protest against a core element of American Jim Crow, and people could then walk home at the end of the day. But mm-hmm. that story of how 1960 was different than uh, a few decades earlier.
0: And, and and this is the backdrop that produces what you call in the book the underappreciated legal dilemmas, uh, one of which you you write as the capacity of legal institutions to remedy different forms of injustice. What, what different form of injustice uh, did the sit-ins reveal and what did it expose about the law and its capability?
2: Yeah. So one thing that's interesting to think about the sit-ins is you can think about all the different ways in which the student's demand could have been um, resolved right? So you can think about, it. they walk into a restaurant, they walk into a lunch counter and they demand to be served. They ask to be served. Uh, one potential scenario is that lunch counter operator, this person standing across could say, it's not worth having a segregation policy anymore. It's hurting my business. I'm going to serve these people, right? They just won their demand without going to court, without going to law. They've done it through um, pressure and through some sort of moral persuasion, perhaps. Um, that's one way in which you can actually have change. That change could be a durable one if the bunch counter owner just, that that's the new policy, they're gonna go on. And you actually do have instances in which this was a resolution to a local sit-in. The private business said, this is no longer gonna be our policy. Uh, it's not worth it and the sit-in's won. So that's one possible um, uh, remedy. Another remedy could be that, um, say the sit-ins take place for a while and then eventually the businesses get frustrated, they go to the mayor, the mayor creates a commission And a commission gets a few student leaders together with some business owners, and they eventually come to some sort of agreement of having a policy of desegregation in the lunch counters. Um, There, you got some, uh, you know, some political actors involved, but you don't have courts. You don't necessarily have a new law being passed. You just have people coming together, discussing what's going on, and coming up to a new resolution. This is basically how segregation at these lunch counters uh, ended in Greensboro, North Carolina, and Nashville. Tennessee to the major hotbeds for these protests. Um, Or you could actually go to the city council and persuade them to pass a law, public accommodations law, saying you need to serve people on a non-discriminatory basis. You could go to a state legislature. All these are different ways in which uh, persuasion or legal change can actually create these changes. In the end, this story kept going sort of up the ladder of the law. It tried to win in the courts. Uh, They never fully won in the courts. Right? The Supreme Court uh, often overturned convictions of protesters, but never gave a sweeping victory to that legal claim, never squarely said that there's a violation of the Constitution to be discriminating in these lunch counters. But eventually you have Congress, right, the most powerful lawmaking body in the country, basically uh, siding with the students in that 1964 Civil Rights Act. So the thing I, I really puzzled through in the book is why, is one, how it's powerful to have these multiple... Uh, avenues of redress, right? They didn't put all their eggs in one basket. There are lots of different ways in which they could actually win this battle, which I think was really important to fueling the social movement. Uh, but also to think about why did the courts not respond to this one? I mean, this was the era of the war in court. This was a court which generally was issuing decisions, you know, like Brown versus Board of Education, generally was issuing decisions supporting the cause of the civil rights movement. Why was a court, why did the court have such difficulty with this particular issue? And that has to do with judges being wary of um, this direct action protest tactic. It had to do with these complexities of that state action doctrine and the 14th Amendment. Uh, And then I also try to think about, well, why was Congress ultimately the place where you could get some resolution? Because at the time of the protest, no one thought Congress was going to get involved in this one. Congress was controlled by uh, Southern segregationists in a lot of ways. The idea of a sweeping national policy to deal with this, most people thought it was going to be the court or nothing. So in the end, we need to figure out why did Congress actually get into this? And the short version of the story there is, it was a larger work of the civil rights movement, right? The the cultural, political transformation that the civil rights movement generally was able to effect, sit-ins being one part of that. uh, It just changed the whole dynamic in the country. It changed the politics of the country for at least that brief moment in the mid 1960s.
0: We are talking with Christopher Smith, a professor of law at Chicago Kent. College of Law, author of the book, The Citizens' Protest and Legal Change in the Civil Rights Era. Chris, you mentioned earlier about the students referring to their dignity with uh, these Citians. Let's take a listen to Franklin McCain, one of the members of the citizens called the Greensboro Four. On February
1: 1st, 1960, it really represents a uh, milestone in my life. My colleagues, Joseph McNeil, the late David Richmond and Isaiah Blair, had uh, been discussing democracy and the lack of it in this country, particularly as it relates to African Americans. And we had uh, chewed on the subject since September of the previous year, 1959, and thought that democracy as practice, for the most part, was a real hypocrisy, particularly related to African-Americans, and we wondered why our parents hadn't taken a stand. We determined that we were responsible for achieving our manhood, our dignity,
0: and we had to do something about it. You have a segment in the book uh, that also reinforces what Mr. McCain is talking about there. Tell us a little bit about that.
2: Yeah, so I think what Franklin McCain is reflecting there is the dominant theme, the dominant term the students would use when describing what they were doing. It really was dignity, and the thing that's really powerful with dignity is dignity can be a term uh, in which you can demand a recognition of dignity uh, from the law. Right. So the idea of having policies of racial discrimination, right, took away people's dignity, and therefore you could one of the demands that would be made for changing laws was the idea that law needs to be structured in such a way that recognizes the equal dignity of all people. At the same time, so so it could be a component of a legal argument. And if you look at the arguments these lawyers would make in court, they definitely talked about dignity quite a bit. At the same time, dignity is such a powerful uh, concept here because the very act of the protest The act of walking into those lunch counters, and if you look at how many students were dressed, they would dress uh, quite formally for this. They'd take in school books, they'd take in Bibles, they'd sit down and study. They would, the protest itself offered an opportunity for them to act in a way that they saw as being particularly dignified, to be recognized as that. So they're asking, demanding of a, a new practice, a new practice getting rid of segregation, which was all about dignity. And the very uh, uh, way in which they framed this demand, which was this physical protest, was an embodiment of that very concept that they were demanding, right? So that's why I think dignity was about, from the beginning to the end, the protest in terms of uh, how they thought about the protest, uh, the um, way they wanted to protest to be perceived, and then the really essence of the demand, the thing they were asking for. I think it's, it's dignity through and through, which is why I think this term was, was really so powerful for these with these students it gave them guidance for how to act and gave them guidance for what they really their ultimate goal was
0: so that becomes the million dollar question for the lawyers how do you turn a moral cry into a legal claim how do you how does the appeal for dignity become a constitutional right so to speak
2: yeah that's just a perfect way of framing it too and this is one of the things you know i teach in a law school that i often talk to my students about uh, the law and litigation, lawyers and courts, incredibly powerful mechanism to frame deeply moral demands, right? There's a lot of moral progress throughout our country's history that has been won by changing laws, by lawyers making powerful arguments in courts. At the same time, litigation in particular can sometimes be a very awkward um, vehicle for advancing. Deeply moralistic claims, because lawyers, you know, they are—they work based upon past laws and precedents. Courts work with their doctrine and they work with these constraints about perceptions about what courts shouldn't shouldn't do. Um, and the sit-ins is really a, just a powerful case study of these things coming into conflict. The students had as powerful a moral claim as any modern protest movement has had, and for many people, it resonated. Again, this is something that most people around the country said their cause is a just one. Uh, At the same time, there are a lot of people who believe their cause was deeply just, who are skeptical about certain kinds, certain ways in which that cause could be recognized. So I'll say that the members of the Supreme Court, a number of whom voted against granting the students uh, the big claim that they were arguing for, uh, most of them actually were sympathetic to the cause itself. Most of them were saying, sure, you shouldn't have racial segregation here. But then they had certain assumptions about what the law could do and what courts should do. So that's the challenge. Right? You can think of it like a translation, translating that moral fervor of a protest into that more formal language of law and legal doctrine. And sometimes that translation happens, and sometimes it doesn't quite get there. And I think the sit-in is an example about where it didn't quite get there. Uh, again, they did eventually win their cause. They won their cause, I think, in the court of public opinion. They won their cause in the, um, the legislature uh, with the Civil Rights Act. Uh, but they didn't quite win it in court, where a lot of people thought they had the probably the best chance of winning, at least at the beginning of the protest. And telling the story about why that is is partly a story about the limits of law and the limits of courts.
0: That that's when you write about that those the limits, that's when you write that the activists themselves are starting to mobilize, mobilize, excuse me, around what their conception of their rights are Probably definitely influenced by what lawyers advocate, what courts decree what judges say, but it's really their construction, their interpretation of what their rights are. Do, do you see that playing out uh, in, in our contemporary time period? Do you see that happening today?
2: Yeah, so it happens all the time. So basically what people are doing is they're uh, taking some of what the courts say, some of what the Constitution say, and they're forming their own commitments. And sometimes they'll frame those commitments as claims on the Constitution, <clears throat> so one way to understand what the students in, sit in protest are doing is they're claiming the Constitution should not allow this particular indignity to take place. Now, all the lawyers, and most of the lawyers involved would, be, would say something along the lines of it's a, it's a good, powerful claim, but it's not really what the Constitution says, or at least it's not what the courts of the Constitution say. For the students engaged in a protest, they didn't care. They were going to go on with their protest, and they were going to continue to frame it as an issue of fundamental rights and about dignity and about human equality. Uh, And the thing is, they kept saying it over and over enough that eventually people started to think, oh, maybe the Constitution actually should be read that way. (laughs) So what they did, if you want to sort of boil it down, they kept making a claim, which most legal experts would say was a wrong claim. And they kept saying it over and over again, and saying it so powerfully, and saying it, you know, through these protests, that eventually more people start to think that, no, maybe that claim isn't so wrong, right? And that's sometimes how constitutional change can actually take place, something that people think is kind of crazy people commit themselves to it, people keep pushing it, people persuade others. And then eventually, sometimes you even persuade judges, and by that point, you can actually change what courts say, meaning constitutional law. And yeah, we see this happening uh, all the time, right? So this is what most social protest is all about when you're trying to protest about the meaning of the Constitution. Um, And oftentimes, social protest is making claim, they do make claims in these protests that don't quite align with what the courts say. So, just to take some contemporary examples, um, so the movement for Black Lives, right, has a very robust view about what uh, justice and equality means in a concept of the criminal justice system. Many of the claims they're asking for doesn't align with where the courts have long read the limits and the scope of the equal protection clause and due process clause. But they're making claims, and some ways are pushing beyond that. And I think the hope is, at some point, maybe we can move society so that we can eventually move the courts and actually get that align. Um, You know, another example that's actually a really powerful one from recent history uh, is the gun rights movement, right? So the idea of a right to bear arms uh, as something that the courts are actually step in and protect was, you know, no one really took it all that seriously up until uh, a few decades ago, and then it gained a lot of momentum. So this claim which people would say, I have a right to do this, which basically was oftentimes wrong because the court wouldn't recognize that right, Um, they kept saying that. There's a strong movement actors behind them, the National Rifle Association being first and foremost. And eventually we do have a case uh, a little over a decade ago in the U.S. Supreme Court where they actually recognized individual right to bear arms based in the Second Amendment, Uh, making some of those claims that people had long been making, saying, I have a constitutional right to have this gun, uh, making that claim, which really was wrong at the time they made it, turning into something that's possibly right. So we can see this happening from all ends of the political spectrum. And it has a lot to do with just the idea of social movements, changing social norms, changing uh, politics. And then eventually uh, you can have people changing their views of the Constitution. And sometimes you even have judges and Supreme Court justices changing their minds.
0: That's another one of those underappreciated legal dilemmas you talk about, the, the relationship between legal reform and social change. And and in a lot of ways, we're still grappling with that now. How do you see your book helping shape the mindset of these three groups of people, the activists who are pushing for change, the lawyers who have to make the legal case for and, and sometimes against that change, and the courts who, as you say, are sometimes a step ahead of public opinion? and sometimes one or more steps behind. How does your book help all three groups of people?
2: So I definitely think one point that needs to get taken from the book uh, is to inspire people to recognize that there are situations in which from the outside it looks like there's an obstacle that simply cannot be overcome. And I have to say, racial segregation in lunch counters looked like one of those obstacles before the sit-in protest. As I said, there's a lot of change happening in terms of racial norms and the legal protections for racial segregation. Uh, But a lot of people thought this was gonna be one of the last things to go, because again, these are private businesses and they weren't quite covered in the same way that the uh, schools and other public facilities were. The sit-in protesters changed that. They showed something that people thought was not vulnerable, they showed it to actually be vulnerable, right? So simply having young people with a different vision of priorities and a different vision of what is actually possible can sometimes actually demonstrate that things that look like they're just never going to change actually can be changed. Uh, I have to say just looking at recent history uh, I found some of that same um, sort of inspiring mix of being um, in somewhat perhaps naive but also visionary in um, a lot of the student activism around gun rights after the Parkland shooting. Right. Mm-hmm. These students, uh, you know, they hadn't been scarred by generations of fighting these battles uh, for gun regulation and losing over and over again, which a lot of the recent history's been all about. And they jumped in and said, no, we're gonna do something about mm-hmm. this. Right. It's that optimism that something could be done. Uh, I think some of that same, um, just sort of optimism of partly just being new to the game, but partly just saying this is something we can go after. Uh, we see that in the student protests themselves. Uh, for lawyers, um, the fascinating thing here is that a lot of what the sit-in story is all about is lawyers trying to sort of move back and forth between their role of being just involved in supporting social causes and their role in advancing constitutional litigation. And a lot of lawyers that were involved on the local scene in these stories uh, in the sit-in protests, uh, they were just there to help out the students. They are going to represent them, do the best they can. They didn't really have a vision of actually changing the law ultimately in the end. Um, and then you have the lawyers who are involved in the constitutional litigation, the Thurgood Marshals and the NAACP lawyers. Um, and the idea that they're both were playing a key role um, and they both could uh, support the students. I think that just shows the uh, diversity of roles that lawyers can play in advancing these social causes. Uh, some people are going to be taking the arguments to the Supreme Court. Some people are going to be simply representing people, getting them out on bail and they all were really playing critical roles. So just sort of thinking creatively about the um, lawyers in that case. Um, And yeah, and then you also have the courts up on sort of the the top of that um, sort of maybe pyramid of uh, influence on these uh, situations. And one thing I wanna emphasize is the courts were a key actor in the story of the sit-ins, but they really weren't the ultimate actor. Uh, And I do think sometimes some social change activists get maybe too focused on the courts and they don't quite appreciate that there's many ways in which you can have sweeping victories when the courts are not necessarily on your side or if the courts are just not really leading the charge. Uh, The courts, there's sometimes opportunities to use them, uh, but sometimes I think they suck up a little bit too much attention and it's worth keeping in mind that the Constitution is not just for the courts, that the people themselves can also make these constitutional claims, can also act upon their own views of the Constitution. And in certain situations, uh, that can be just as powerful as that sweeping court opinion.
0: Interesting. The book is called The Citians Protest and Legal Change in the Civil Rights Era. Chris, would you give our listeners your website and where they can get the book?
2: Uh, the book's available at uh, most booksellers. I know Amazon.com carries it as well as other booksellers. And it's published by University of Chicago Press. And I know it's available on their website as well.
0: Excellent. Chris, thank you so much for joining us on Hidden Legal Figures. Good to it's talk.
2: It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. In partnership with the National Center for Civil and Human Rights, the Arc of Justice Institute is developing a traveling exhibit to recognize the heroic and vital contributions lawyers and judges made to the civil rights
1: movement. Under the Color of Law will premiere in February 2021. To learn more, visit www.onthearc.net.